gonna say it Somebody should Let's talk about two times talk about but one, yeah You're asking the questions That nobody could Like where the bone thaws in Are they in harmony? everyone welcome to another episode one of these wonderful episodes that we all can enjoy with our lives i'm pete i'm here i'm the host and i've got things that was supposed to be the sound of a a paper ruffling but uh, i don't know if that was um let's just get started right away i have book news on a few different levels Um, let's start with this. I had a, uh, I got a message on Goodreads. Goodreads is a website that, uh, completely sold out to Amazon and now is like built into your Kindle where you can rate and review books and, uh, you get book recommendations. I write reviews on there often. So I got a message from Dr. Melanie Walsh. Uh, now who is Dr. Melanie Walsh? I wondered. Um, Dr. Melanie Walsh, this is from her website, which is melaniewalsh.org, which I feel like having your name and then a .org should only happen if you're dead, but you know, that's me. Hi, I'm Melanie Walsh, and I'm a postdoctoral associate in information science at Cornell University. Ooh, Cornell. Andy from The Office completely ruined Cornell, as far as people saying, like, I feel like at one time that was a nice place to say you were from. Now I feel like it just makes everyone think, oh, what an idiot. I received my PhD in English and American literature from Washington University in St. Louis. My research interests include digital humanities, cultural analytics, social media, and American, American literature and culture, preferably all of the above combined. Okay, so she's a postdoctoral student, so she's getting like a I don't even know what you get after a PhD. She's already got a PhD in English and American literature, and now she's getting another one in information science. Seems like a, uh, okay, so here's what I do. I go to school for my work. Um, At Cornell, I'm designing, at Cornell, I'm designing and teaching an undergraduate course that prepares students in the humanities to analyze cultural materials such as books, movies, historical records, and social media posts with digital and computational tools. The course includes an introduction to the programming language Python. You can check out my CV teaching digital projects, infrequent blog thoughts, or manuscript in progress. Let's just look at some of these things. Um, Digital projects. Um, Tweets of a native son a website featuring data visualizations about James Baldwin's 21st century digital afterlives that can be explored. Okay. Um, I don't know what that means. Mapping the Libro Traficante movement, an interactive story map of the 2012 Libro Traficante caravan that combines a geographic map with a corresponding multimedia narrative. Um, Okay. Mapping the birth and death places of Nobel laureates. Okay, geospatial data set for the birth and death places of Nobel winners from 1901 to 2017. So, I mean, that's just a a map, right? 
Um, here's a microfiction generator. Let's just click on that. Let's just try one of these. Okay, so it just generates stories. That's dumb. Um, what do we have here? A million tweeted tributes to Toni Morrison. Um, oh, this must be the blog thing. Toni Morrison, one of the best and most influential literary writers of the 20th and 21st centuries, died on Monday. She was the first black woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in the office. Okay, thanks for the Wikipedia article. Um, to preserve, blah, blah, blah. I started collecting tweets that mentioned Toni Morrison with a twerk, a digital tool created by Ed Summers and DocNow. At the end of this blog post, I will have blah, blah, blah. Um, total duration of the snapshot. Okay, so basically she just like has a bunch of tweets about Toni Morrison collected. Um, so this is a BuzzFeed article wearing Cornell's clothing. Oh, here's her manuscript in pro progress. My current book project, when post-war American fiction went viral, literary protest, corporate profit, and popular readers in the 21st century explores how and why people in the last two decades, inspired by the rise of the internet and social media, recirculated and reimagined American literary texts published in the late 20th century through Black Lives Matter tweets, licensed Amazon fan fiction, Street Fighter websites, Tumblr selfies, and more. Throughout the book, I rely on digital and computational tools. Okay. okay, so basically this is a person who I really should have nothing to do with. Um, obviously, right? Okay, so, and her Good Goodreads profile, by the way, is like um, basically that thing I read to you about Cornell. So, I got a message from her, and by the way, her Goodreads username is Dr. Melanie. Mine is Pete. Um, Dear Peter Dirk, my name is Melanie Walsh, and I'm a postdoctoral scholar and professor at Cornell University. My colleague, Maria Antoniak, is a PhD student at Cornell. We're reaching out because we would like to quote from one of your Goodreads reviews, that's bolded because maybe I'm stupid, in our forthcoming journal article. The article is about Goodreads users and their perceptions of classic books, and it will be published in the Journal of Cultural Analytics and Post 45 sometime in the next few months. The audience for this article will mostly be academics who are interested in literature, culture, and digital tools. So Cultural Analytics is an open access journal dedicated to the computational study of culture, blah, blah, blah. This is all just one big circle jerk, obviously. Post 45 is a collective of scholars working on American literature and culture since 1945. Oh, my God. Um, it's just a bunch of people who work at colleges. Great. So... Um, this is your specific Goodreads review that we would like to quote from, and she links to it. We think this review is very interesting, and we believe that it's valuable for better understanding the Goodreads community and how people feel about, quote, classic literature. Because your privacy, basically then she asks if it's okay if, um, she gives me three options. One, you may quote from my Goodreads review and use my Goodreads username, Peter Dirk. Option two, you may quote from my Goodreads review, but not use my Goodreads username. Option three, you may not quote from my Goodreads review. Um, if you'd like to discuss further citation options or have other questions about our research, please let us know. She puts her entire contact info as well as uh, her colleague's uh, contact info, who's also, yeah. 
So these are some like glasses wearing white lady nerds, obviously. Uh, Maria is interested in natural language processing, unsupervised machine learning, digital humanities, healthcare, computational, social science. Great. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the review that, uh, that they're talking about. So my review um, that they're talking about being very interesting and useful for this publication is of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. And I will just read it to you and maybe add some little things here. Holy fanking shit, terrible. I guess that was a joke because it's like phantom and fucking and it's PH. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. This was a year ago, guys. I can't be expected to remember everything. Every so often, I'll get into a classic, I guess because I feel like writing a really nasty review. Classics are great fodder for nasty reviews because, one, the people who made them are long dead. This dude died in 1927. His daughter died when I was one. Once it gets to grandkids, I feel like you can't get all pissy. If someone was mad at my grandfather for something, I'd probably be like, yeah, it does sound like a real dick move. Saying bad stuff about a classic novel doesn't hurt the creator's feelings, unless he's reading this in hell which is where I assume he is because he wrote Phantom of the Opera, which I had to read. Two, classics have such a pedestal in the literary world already that the opinion of one lone weirdo who is ugly but not fat and talks about comic books a lot, just covering the bases regarding what's bad about me, is pretty irrelevant. It's not like bashing on, a, on this book is suddenly going to render it a not a classic or affect its sales. Frankly, I think that about everything I read, but with classic, it's a pretty rock-solid premise. So without further ado, spoilers, I guess, if you want to read this novel and haven't gotten around to it in the last 100 years, and you haven't seen the play or the movie or whatever, then spoilers. Do we give spoilers for something like this? Isn't this like spoiling that the North won the Civil War? Tangent, in middle school, we did a Civil War reenactment. This company provided uniforms and fake guns and shit, and we went to a park and pretended we were in the Civil War. The teachers did not tell us which side won because they figured, correctly, that all sixth graders would want to be on the winning side. I wasn't super smart, but even I was like, well, we don't have slaves anymore, right? Seems likely that the North was successful. Also, just a little snapshot of my education, we wouldn't want to tell kids the outcome of a war because it might fuck up our reenactment video. End tangent. First thing I hated about this book. Perhaps other editions are different, but mine use these shortenings. M-M-E period equals mademoiselle, M period equals monsieur, M-M period equals monsieur, plural, and so on. You don't realize until you try it how programmed you are by shortenings like M-R period and M-S period for Mr. and Ms. When you see them, you instantly recognize them for what they are, which is shorthand for common titles. So why, if this is translated from French, would you not either A, translate these terms as well into Mr., Ms., Mrs., this would make it a lot easier to read. B, write them out in full rather than shortening them, therefore making it a word I recognize instead of the initialization which I'm not familiar with. Either of these solutions is better than just leaving the shortenings as is, which was pretty goddamn annoying. Second thing I hated about this book. There was a sequence where Raoul, the hero, was with a character known as the Persian. They both have pistols, and they're walking through these darkened corridors, and the Persian has to argue with Raoul. See, Raoul doesn't want to hold his pistol up in a position ready to shoot someone. He's complaining that it makes his arm tired. His arm tired? We're assaulting the fortress of this bastard ghost man and you're complaining about your arm being tired? 
Gee, never thought about it that way. You're right. We should just turn back. Never mind that your girlfriend is tied to a chair and this evil bastard intends to blow up the entire opera house and everyone in it. Some things just aren't worth making your arm tired for. Third thing. This book retraces itself way too much. I don't need to see the same sequence from multiple angles and shit. Save it for Pulp Fiction. Not interested. Fourth thing. The Phantom turns out to be named Eric. Eric? Eric. And not like Eric Bloodhaven or something, just, you know, Eric. Some dude named fucking Eric. Fifth thing. Eric is the only interesting character in the entire thing. Frankly, I was hoping he'd blow up the opera. That's an event. You know what's not an event? Pretty much everything else that happens. And at least he's fucked up looking. Everyone else is pretty generic and boring. You've got these two guys who bought the opera, a couple singers who seem like jerks, and Raul, who is a wuss. Sixth thing. Everyone in this book is stupid. These two dudes are foiled by a sleight of hand trick. Twice. It takes them weeks to consider whether there might be secret passages in this giant opera house where people somehow keep vanishing from within rooms and other people hear clearly human voices coming from the walls almost constantly. A fucking horse goes missing and everyone is like, wait, we have a horses? It takes them a ridiculously long time to figure out that a really ugly dude is not, in fact, a paranormal creature? Get your shit together. Seventh thing. I get a very mixed message from this book. On one hand, I think you're supposed to feel bad for Eric, and perhaps that his path was not of his choosing. Because he looks all fucked up, he couldn't live the normal life he wanted. On the other hand, he ends up pretending he's a ghost, extorting money from people, and kidnapping some lady so she'll marry him, threatening to blow a bunch of shit up if she says no. There's a message about books and their covers and so on, but then I feel like Eric isn't terribly sympathetic either because as fucked up as he might look, damn, you're just gonna blow up a few hundred people who came to the opera? He's going to 9-11 that whole fucking place just because he's ugly? I mean, if that's how this works, based on my looks, I should at least be able to rear-end someone in traffic without consequence. A thing. I don't get why the Persian is all of a sudden cocking a shotgun and saying, let's get this son of a bitch. Why didn't he do this sooner? Don't get me wrong, this is probably one of the only effective characters opposing the ghost. He's figuring out a trap door while Raul is laying on the ground and soiling himself because they're in a toasty room. I just don't understand why he's all invested in this shit now instead of, you know, like five years ago. It's like we're watching his Spider-Man moment where he lets the robber buy and then the robber kills Uncle Ben. Maybe the ghost killed the Persian's kindly uncle the previous day and the Persian now realizes what he must do at a very convenient time. This sounds small, but this sort of thing is what takes away from the world of a story. Because things just happen to coincide this way, it makes it seem like this world exists only within the story and for the story's duration. Ninth thing. How did we not get better comedy from these two dorks buying an opera house and then the previous owners being like, oh, by the way, there's a fucking ghost who's going to occupy box five, and also you have to pay him a shitload of protection money and basically let him kidnap and kill the occasional person? Sorry we didn't mention that earlier, lol. Tenth thing. Is it just me or is it not well explained how the ghost ruined Carlotta? Now, I looked it up, and I guess it's implied that the ghost, using his opera powers, was able to throw his voice down to the stage, make it sound like Carlotta was croaking instead of singing, and therefore destroy her performance. So she wasn't actually destroyed, and if she performed anywhere else, she'd be fine? Weak. Eleventh thing. The chandelier falls, killing the woman who is going to replace the box keeper for box five, which is where the phantom likes to hang out. Eric claims that he had nothing to do with it. I'm not sure if you're supposed to think this is bullshit or not, because on one hand, he admits to all kinds of heinous shit, so why would this one thing be the thing he's like, nah man? 
On the other hand, it seems convenient that it happened when it did and crushed who it did. But then am I supposed to believe that Eric dropped the chandelier and somehow caused this one person, the only person killed by the chandelier, to sit directly beneath it during the performance? I was just listening to this podcast where an author was talking about the difficulties of writing fiction versus nonfiction. In a way, he said, fiction has to be more plausible than nonfiction, because if something crazy actually happened, you can always back up your story with, hey man, that's how it went down. There's really no obligation of nonfiction to seem true, so long as it is true. Fiction, on the other hand, has a plausibility requirement. A very strange coincidence that happens in real life, which might seem random and very unlikely, is acceptable in nonfiction. But in fiction, a character acting out of character, a random senseless event, or a thing that just sort of happens is harder to make fly, which brings us back to Phantom. On the one hand, it's so implausible that the chandelier would fall when it did on who it did that it's an oh-come-on moment if we read it as coincidence. Thus, we're meant to read it as intentional. However, when Eric claims it was not his doing, we're left in a problematic situation. We really have no reason to think he's lying about this after telling so many awful truths. Truths. <laughs> this fucking chandelier, man. Twelfth thing. This half-mask shit is shit. In the Lon Chaney version, the Phantom was pretty gruesome. Gerard Butler? Only like a quarter of his face is hidden behind the mask, and I'm telling you right now, three quarters of a Gerard Butler face is way more than any of us can hope for. I'm not buying that one couldn't get by on being three quarters Gerard Butler in the looks department. So there you go. Uh, my prediction is that uh, they aren't going to like that doctors, Dr. Melanie Walsh and Maria Antoniak are not going to like um, this thing. By the way, I feel like doctor something should be like, um, they need to come up with a different term for people who are doctors who can't like help someone who just passed out. Um, no offense to any doctors out there. I'm just like, I don't know. I think doctor is kind of like a job and a degree. And uh, when it's talking about the job, that seems pretty urgent. Or, you know, can't you be like Melanie Walsh, PhD, instead of Dr. Melanie Walsh? Anyway, um, I'm assuming they will never listen to this, and uh, therefore, whatever. Also, I just don't care. Okay, I also um, have had some heat on Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land while we're in Goodreads. Um, a bunch of people added it to their to-read list and stuff, and I found out it's because someone who does like a YouTube book review show reviewed it. So let's let's take a listen, shall we? A little bit steamy, I would say, but all in all, like I did quite enjoy it. This so is I'm putting it book. acceptable. So in roughly two months, I have binged my way through 22 cycles, seasons for the un uninitiated of America's Next Top Model. And because of that, I learned that Tyra Banks wrote books. Multiple books, actually. I'm gonna talk about it later, but Tyra wrote a book called Model Land. They put it in my- So right now, she's got, she's got like this ranking system thing with images and then she drags them up and it's like the top is outstanding and the bottom is a uh, troll. It's a little blurry, hold on. Let me see if I can, I'm old. Okay, troll, dreadful, poor, acceptable, exceeds expectations, outstanding. And she just dropped my book into acceptable. It is a bad look. And I do not say this lightly. I like 
a lot of the books. Even books that are kind of bad, I still love them. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. She's talking As about I was Model Googling Land. various aspects of Model Land, because I realized someone wrote a 50,000 word review of the book. <laughs> That's right. Someone was petty enough to write a 50,000 word review of a 500 page book. Now, when, when she says petty, I sort of take issue with it and sort of don't. Because on the one hand, I don't think I did it out of pettiness or anger. I think it was, this was an, an act of um, confusion because basically I was confused at how this book came to exist in the form that it exists in. If you haven't read Pete's exhaustive review of Model Land, um, an important facet of it here is that um, there were edit like this was a major publication. There were editors, there were people who looked it over and I can't figure out how it wound up as insane as it is, as nonsensical as it is, um, with those resources at Tyra Banks's slash the publisher's disposal. So it's it's kind of confusion, but you know, I'll, pettiness is fine. I'm not offended by that idea. And honestly, it's amazing. This man who wrote- just got dragged up to outstanding. Also, I object to the term "this man." I would. Uh, man child maybe this review he deserves an award not only for finishing the book but also for just the sheer brilliance of this review of her book it was i was blown away if i'm gonna be completely honest like how good that review was and how hilarious it was and it actually helped motivate me to keep working on model and the book if there's one thing i could uh you know, one regret, it's that perhaps this review has spurred people to read Model Land, which is unfortunate. So one thing I really like about um, this review slash book is that it brings up something that is something that I always kind of have like as an internal philosophy as I'm reviewing books. So if I'm reviewing a book from a self-published author or from an indie author, I often will not take it as critically as I would take a review by a big name publisher. And that's because when you're a self-publisher, you are on your own. You are your own publicist, your editor, your marketer, cover design, everything is done by you. And I feel like grading them on the same scale as a publishing company who has the ability to hire people, hire the best editors, hire the best alpha readers, beta readers, etc., etc. It's not fair to judge those two the same. However, since Tyra's book had access to all those resources and still published what happened, it's fair game in my opinion. I like that it was still published what happened. I mean, that's like perfect. Stuff we have, Perfect is Boring by Tyra Banks. I will note that this one was published after the Model and Fiasco, and it also has a ghostwriter. So it's written by Tyra, her mother, and a ghostwriter. And honestly, let's give a standing ovation to the ghostwriter because this book different, like leagues different. So there you go. Um, I just wanted to get in a little of Tyra's next book there because that's fascinating. So there you go. Um, read read it. She also wrote a review that was really nice, and uh, I appreciate it. You know, so that's uh, that's Miranda Reads on Goodreads if you're looking for a friend.
Thank you for being a friend, Miranda. And, uh, you know, read that, read that fucking Pete's Exhaustive Review of Model Land. Why not? I mean, what could it hurt? What could it really hurt to do it? All right. Next. Um, I got a, an important survey in the mail. Um, I've got a bunch of junk in the mail lately. But this was a weird um, printed on 8.5 by 14 paper. And it was not clear who it was from. Oh, it's from the Southern Poverty Law Center. Okay. Uh, so it starts with a quote about by Martin Luther King. Dear Peter Dirk, following the March for Voting Rights from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama, 50 years ago, Dr. King spoke his immortal words to a crowd of thousands. But if Dr. King were here to... I mean, already I'm like, dude, you can... Like, can we get to the... This is one... Two pages front and back of just text, eight and a half by 14. I mean, this needs an editor already. Like, we could start a little closer to now than 1965, if that's possible. But if Dr. King were here today and could see the reactionary political climate that pervades our nation and witness the ferocious backlash against civil rights and equality, he might ask, how much longer? Um, this is not correctly punctuated. I'm questioning whether this is from the place it says it's from. Um, this also is one of those printings where they've got highlights printed and they also have what's supposed to look like, you know, handwritten, like it says, over, please, to turn it over, um, in pen. So it's like printed in a tricky way to make it look like, you know, on the next page, there's like things that are circled and stars and arrows. Um, how much longer until voting rights are respected, racial hatred is van vanquished, and access to quality education and health care provided? How much longer until we stop the runaway exploitation of poor Americans? For more than 45 years, the Southern Poverty Law Center has led the fight to turn the promises of the civil rights movement into reality for people who face discrimination, and we're continuing to stand up for people who endure racial injustice. You may know us for the landmark cases we've won in court, burying remnants of Jim Crow segregation in the Deep South, crushing and for some reason ellipses with spaces in between, crushing violent white supremacist groups in court, including the Klan, and securing justice for many victims of bigotry. Right now, we're fighting Mississippi's racist disenfranchisement law, blah, 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 that permanently bars 200,000 people from voting. That seems like a lot. Um, we just won a $14 million judgment against the founder of a major neo-Nazi website for orchestrating an anti-Semitic harassment campaign that terrorized a Jewish woman and her family. Is, there, is that guy a fourteen million? I always wonder, like, so when you when you get a judgment against you and they're like, I don't know, fourteen million dollars. If you're like just a guy, do you are you just like, well, I mean, what? How does that work? We watched that uh, McMillions movie, and you know, some guy gets a judgment against him for like a billion dollars, and so he's like, well, I pay like three hundred dollars a month, and I'll just pay that until I'm dead. And you're like, well, okay, so at some point. Somebody who knows something about accounting must come into the court situation and say, okay, well, I mean, we're not going to get this money out of him. And he has a job, but if he doesn't have 
if we take every dime he makes, then he can't like live and therefore can't generate more money for us. So that doesn't really work. So like, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the realistic amount we think we can get out of this guy? I mean, $300 a month isn't like a billion, but you know, $300 a month for the next like 50 years isn't too bad, I guess. Um, they need my thoughtful responses to the questions in this census document. Please complete your survey and return it in the postage paid envelope. Oh, and also consider a generous tax-deductible contribution of twenty, thirty-five, fifty, or more. I like how it says, please consider a generous donation. Don't give us a crappy one. But uh, we can't forget the heavy cost of winning the right to vote for African Americans or the incredible movement of the people who put Jim Crow in his coffin. Is Jim Crow a real guy? Um, the sacrifices of citizen activists must be carried forward to ensure equal justice for all, especially those targeted with bigotry, hate, and discrimination. I have to look up if Jim Crow is like a real guy. Um, I wonder if it's like a real guy or is this like, was Jim Crow a real person? I mean, I know what it is. Oh, I see. Jim Crow persona was a theater character by Thomas D. Rice and an ethnic depiction in accordance with contemporary white ideas of African Americans. The character was based on a folk trickster named Jim Crow that had long been popular among black slaves. Rice also adapted the, and popularized a traditional slave song called Jump Jim Crow. Now is Thomas D. Rice black or white? Oh, he performed in blackface. That's unfortunate. <laughs> oh, and they've got a picture. I can't decide if the drawing of this guy performing as Jim Crow in blackface is worse than the actual thing. Or, like, what's worse? The actual depiction or then the drawing of that depiction, which kind of even kicks it up a notch. <laughs> I mean... Oh, man. It's like everyone was like, who can out-racist everyone? <laughs> um, I can't, I'm not going to read this whole thing because this is too long. We were horrified by the images on TV of children being ripped from their parents and locked in cages. Voter suppression. Hate and extremism. I mean, here's some advice, by the way. Southern Poverty Law Center. You can't go from children being ripped from their parents and locked in cages to voter suppression. Like, I, I know, I get it. It's bad. But I mean, you gotta, you gotta like think about the arc here. Every time you look at the news, there's another story about hate crimes or the passage of new laws to legalize discrimination, criminalize immigration, or restrict the right to vote. SPLC is leading the fight. We won't back down. It won't stop. We're tracking and exposing more than 1,000 hate groups, including neo-Nazi clan and other white supremacist organizations. Oh, God. is Let's just hope that, you know, now I'm an LLC. They're not like, oh, you guys hate us. This is from Edward G. Lord, Chief Development Officer at the Southern Poverty Law Center. I think this survey may be a trick to get me to give them money. Because if that's the development officer... Ooh, they did give me free um, mailing labels. Well, that's so nice. Restore voting rights. Bumpers. Is this a bumper sticker? It's not very high quality, but 
I think it's meant to be. Oh, and here's a map. Here's a map of active hate groups at all-time high in the United States. Um, my state has a few. Oh, Jesus. This is, like, so tiny. Let me ask you this, SPLC. Why do you hate the hard of seeing? Um, okay, it looks like, from what I can see, that there are none in New Mexico. There's one that's, like, right on the border of Texas and New Mexico that might be in New Mexico. But even so, it's on the very southern border, and it looks like it's in Texas. So if you're looking to avoid hate groups, here's what I would recommend based on this map. Well, nothing east of, uh, um, you know, the Mimal in the app, the Michigan, Iowa, Missouri uh, thing, Louisiana. Um Nothing east of there, for sure. Texas is out. I know that's a big surprise. Um, but some good spots. Looks like there's some pretty clear area in Idaho, Nevada, Montana. North Dakota's only got two. Uh, Wyoming has one in the dead center. So basically anywhere not, not dead center Wyoming, you're in pretty good shape. Um, basically, it's... You know how you can avoid a hate group is to live where there isn't people. <laughs> um, this includes Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazi, white nationalist, racist skinhead. Can some of these be collapsed into one thing? I mean, I, I don't know what the difference is between a neo-Nazi and a racist skinhead and a white nationalist, but I'm not like real concerned about it. Uh, racist skinhead, Christian identity. I don't even know what that is, but there's only 17 of those, so I'm not too worried about it. Neo-Confederate, Black Nationalist, what? That's a hate group also? Also, there's Black Nationalist, 264 of those, and 148 White Nationalist groups? How is this? What? What is going on? Um, 17 anti-immigrant, that seems low. 49 anti-LGBT. 100 anti-Muslim, and 163 that are just general hate groups. <laughs> I like that category. You know, they're just generally unpleasant, hateful people, I guess. Okay, so here's the... Um, wait, I want to look up black nationalists groups. I'd, I'd never even heard of this. A, a type of political thought that seeks to promote, develop, and maintain a black race identity for people of black nas ancestry. Ooh, the return of violent black nationalists. This is from the SPLC Center. Okay. So here we go. Um, during a single month last year, America witnessed two of the most horrific shooting attacks against law enforcement in recent history. Micah Xavier Johnson ambushed Dallas police officer. Okay. All right. Well, I guess this is a thing. I don't know. It's like, man, SPLC Law Center. I don't want to say bad things about what you're doing, but it does seem like you've got um, your work cut out for you. I don't know if it's possible to just like um, focus on one aspect or whatever. I don't know how it works. Let's see. I'm trying to look at, like, expand this map here. 
and just look at my state. Okay, here we go. Oh, good. Okay. Um, I have we've got an Act for America anti-Muslim group in Walsenburg, wherever that is. American Identity Movement in Denver, Boulder, and Colorado Springs. Asa Asa True Folk Assembly. Hold on, let me look at my my legend. See if I can find what that is. Um, I don't know what that is. Atomwaffen Division. That's statewide. Colorado Alliance for Immigration Reform. Family Research Institute. There's one just called Generations. That's a very... Uh... Oh, there's a Great Millstone Black Separatist Movement in Denver. Um, MSR Productions is Hate Music in Wheat Ridge. That sounds like a nice place to live. Northern Kingdom Prophets, New Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, Patriot Front, Proud Boys, um, Scriptures for America Worldwide Ministries, CJ Foundation, um, The Pray in Jesus Name Project, oh, The Right Stuff, that's a fun, <laughs> oh, that one makes me laugh. Oh, you can like do this little slider from 2000 to 2019 and see, there were only a few then, and now there's more. You can also filter by ideology. That's neat. So I can, like, look at just, like, if I just want to look at neo-Volkish groups, which I don't know what that is. But I guess there isn't one. It says we tracked one, but I don't see it here. Okay, anyway. Um, well, this is interesting. I'm learning. See what I'm learning? See how much we learn on this show? That there's these hate groups around. I can download the data. Oh my God. Um, okay. So here's the survey. It's got a registration number. Oh my God. I'm supposed to. Oh, okay. Dark pen or pencil. It looks like a Scantron. And I'm curious about, but it says you can use a pen or a pencil. So it must not actually be a Scantron. Makes me suspicious that this is not, that this survey is not actually going to be used. Um, okay, first section, discrimination and intolerance. In the past year, have you or anyone in your family been discriminated against by an employer in housing, by a business, or other? Well, how? I don't know. Probably. I mean, hasn't anybody? Uh, two, in the past year, have you or anyone in your family been called a slur or been the target of verbal assault because of your socioeconomic background or sexual orientation? That's a weird one to combine because I'm rich and gay. Um, you rich gay, you, have your children or younger members of your family ever been bullied in school? <laughs> and there's yes, no, or not sure. What do you do? I, this is a survey design question I have. What do you do when the answer people give is, I don't know? Because then you're like, yeah, I don't know either. I mean, that basically leaves us where we started. Because you don't know, I don't know, nobody knows. Uh, hate groups. Have you ever seen evidence of organized hate groups in your community? Yes, no, or not sure. So again, like, well, the answer is yes. If you're like, well, I'm not sure. Maybe something I saw was a secret hate group uh, symbol. Then you're like, well, I mean, I, how does that work? Uh, do you think law enforcement should do more to monitor and investigate active hate groups in the United and terrorist organizations in the United States? I don't know. That's that's I don't know. I don't know what they should do. I guess not sure. 
I'm going to put not sure. Do you think internet companies have a responsibility to stop racists from using their digital platforms to indoctrinate children? <laughs> Do I think internet companies have a responsibility to stop the, um, I mean, what does that mean? Like, should, uh, Comcast be like, oh, no more website for you. Maybe, but I mean, should they do that? Maybe, but are they like respond? I don't know how you would even know that that's happening. Or does this mean like Facebook? And how are they using digital platforms to indoctrinate children? I'm confused. Is this like you watch Baby Shark video and then at the end it's like, by the way, did you know that these people are uh, inferior because of their race? <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's probably happening. I don't know. Are you familiar with the, quote, alt-right movement and its white nationalist ideology? Again, yes, no, or not sure. It's kind of a yes or no question. I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that. I mean, I guess I'm like, I'm familiar with it, but I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know what the point is. But I guess I don't know what the point is because I'm like, well, is there a point? I don't understand. Do you think President Trump's rhetoric and policies are emboldening hate groups? Yes, no, or not sure. I mean, that's, I guess that's also a not sure. I was really crapping on the not sure, but now whatever. Uh, voting rights. Do you think in-person voter fraud is a serious problem in America? No, because nobody goes to vote anyway. I mean, I would think this was a problem if it was like, how did 120% of Americans vote? But when you're like, well, I mean, like, I don't know, 60% of people voted or whatever. I'm like, eh, probably not. Do you think voter ID laws and other restrictions on voting discriminate against racial and ethnic minorities? I actually don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that there's a great way around, like, having an ID to vote. But then also, I've, like, just mailed in a ballot. So I'm like, how the fuck do they know who that was? I mean, some guy could have just found that in the mail and then voted for whoever. In the last two elections, 2016 and 2018, have you or anyone in your family been challenged or turned away when you tried to vote? Uh, not, I don't think so. Um, do you think, oh, immigration reform. Do you think, quote, dreamers living in the United States should be provided a path to full citizenship? Sure. <laughs> oh, why not? Um... Should federal agencies have to receive approval from a judge before they can deport an immigrant? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I guess, I guess that'd be a lot more judge jobs. I could be a judge on that. They're just like, should we deport this guy? Yes or no. And I'm like, well, what's he doing? And they're like, he cleans up at the college. I'd be like, eh, no. Civil rights movement. Do you think enough has been done by the federal government to eliminate discrimination in housing, education, and employment? I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. It seems like they make the law and then, um, you know, I learned something in the library world, which is a rule that can't be enforced is not a good rule. And I've always carried that with me because it's like, yeah, I guess if you make a rule, but then when when the rubber meets the road, you're like, we have no way to enforce that. It's kind of like um, some libraries will have like a policy that's like, you can't bring guns into the library, but they really have no way to enforce that. So it's not a great rule. So I don't know. Should cities be allowed to operate 
debtors' prisons that jail people when they cannot afford to pay fines like traffic tickets. Uh, no? I don't know. I don't know how you um, get that money by putting someone in prison, so I guess that, that doesn't make sense to me. They should just be, I don't know, garnish their wages? That makes more sense, right? Or force them to pay something? I guess here's the thing, is like a traffic ticket makes me think speeding ticket, which I'm like, no... But then I think, well, okay, if if somebody totaled my car and that money's got to come from somewhere, um, and it probably could come from somebody who was, like, texting and driving, that seems okay to me. How much more needs to be done in order to achieve racial equality? A lot, some, not much, or we're equal? I mean, we're equal, not much, some, or a lot. <laughs> I think these questions are funny, too. It's not funny to me because it's like, I mean, I think there's a pretty clear answer here, but it's funny to me the way they divide the answers a lot, some, not much, or we're equal because I'm like, well, why don't you just say a lot or nothing? I mean, isn't that really the thing? Then I have to do my age, what I consider myself politically, and if I'm registered to vote. And then question 20 is just a bubble you fill in that says, I have completed my take a stand survey. Peter, will you stand with the hundreds of thousands of SPLC members who are fighting hate and bigotry and working to bring tolerance and understanding to our country? And the answer is yes. I am enclosing my tax deductible membership gift in the amount of um, 35 is what they'd prefer. But, you know, you can go up to 100 or as low as 20 or say other. I can make this a monthly donation, I can enclose a check, or I can put my credit card number, write it down on a sheet, which I would not recommend anyone do, but you can do that. Um, I can give them my email address for alerts and additional comments. I'm suspicious that this was a trick to get me to donate to them. I'm suspicious that this survey isn't actually going to go anywhere. But I'm just a cynical suspicion guy. But anyway, well, I learned a lot. I learned that um, there are lots of different kinds of hate groups. I learned that there's a difference between a neo-Nazi and a white supremacist. I don't know what that difference is, but there is a difference. Um, I learned that there are um, seeming seems to be some groups in my state, but I would say not an alarming number. So that's a plus. I mean, there aren't a lot. Well, there are. I guess there are now. I was going to say there aren't a lot of people who aren't white here, but there are. You just have to go to the different sides of town. Find them. <laughs> but it is it is easy. It is kind of like, okay, Wyoming only has one, but I wouldn't clap myself on the back too hard there because I'd be like, well, there's like five people here. So they all, you know, one is per capita kind of a high number, really, when you get down to it. And also, how hateful are you going to be of, like, Puerto Rican people if you've never met one? I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of a hate group, right? Is you just sort of hate people for no real reason. But on the other hand, I, I, don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, like, for example, dog ownership. Because I don't own a dog. And I don't have to take care of a dog. So I'm like, I don't, I don't really have strong feelings about it. But anyway, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about the Law Center. I don't think I'm going to be making a donation today. I've made my uh, my contribution to my favorite charity, Off the Street Club. Look it up um, if you're interested. I don't know why you would be. 
This is like all falling apart here at the end. It was not, isn't that, wasn't as fun of a survey as I thought. It was more like, I don't know. Do you think that there's, it really could have been one question, I think. Do you think that racism is still exists and is bad? Yes or no? And then it'd be like, cool. That's really, that's really what we're getting at here. I think, I think they may have asked a lot of questions that really got us to the same answer. It's like taking a math test where every answer is two. You're like, well, we could have done this quicker. 